portion of God's word that we'll focus our attention on for a little while this evening comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you listen to that account, a lot of things may jump out at you. But did you find the focus of it to be on what the word of God does? probably pretty easy for you to compare real quickly the earthly life of the rich man with the earthly life of Lazarus. Polar opposites. The one lives in luxury every single day. The other one is suffering, a a kind of suffering that I'm not sure too many people can actually relate to. Body covered in sores. So hungry he would eat the scraps from the rich man's table if he were given them. Maybe you, you, you jump to the comparison of the afterlife for these two men. As the rich man is suffering unthinkable things and Lazarus is comforted for all eternity. Maybe that's where your, your focus was drawn. Lazarus is, is craving one drop of water. That sounds like it would bring relief to him. Lazarus is comforted for eternity. Polar opposites on earth, polar opposites in heaven. 
it's easy to get caught up in those details. <clears throat> and yet the focus is on the word of God. The focus here is on what the word of God does. Abraham speaking to this rich man after the rich man realizes there's nothing that Abraham can do to ease my pain, then how about the ones that I love who are still on earth? My brothers who are still enjoying their time of grace probably the same way that he had in in the lap of luxury, let's have Lazarus go and warn them of this terrible place. And what does Abraham say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man's convinced, still clueless for all eternity. If you send Lazarus, if they see someone rise from the dead, then they'll get it. Then they'll understand how bad this place is. Then they'll repent. And what does Abraham say? If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So what is it that Moses and the prophets say that is so compelling, so beautiful, so persuasive that if they don't listen to it, they won't be compelled even if someone rises from the dead? I started this sermon talking about the word of God. The focus is on the word of God. Here Abraham refers to the word of God as Moses and the prophets. And if you know your Old Testament you probably remember Moses wrote those first five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then there's all sorts of prophets spread throughout the Old Testament. Everyone from King David in the Psalms to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then those shorter ones toward the end, Hosea, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. What is it that these prophets and Moses had to say? Well, Moses, of course, starts with the creation account, how God made all things from nothing. How how you and I, human beings, we're the crown of his creation. Doesn't matter what part of the world you're from. Doesn't matter what your skin color is. Doesn't matter how, how you speak or what language you speak or how many languages you speak. None of that matters. Human beings from all over the world are descendants of Adam and Eve, the crown of God's creation. And of course, there's the fall account. How Adam and Eve got tricked, tricked into believing that God was withholding something from them. They believed a lie and sin and death entered the world. But but right away, God steps in. I had the privilege of studying that that wonderful little promise in Genesis 3.15 today with a, a lady in Bible instruction class. What does it say? God speaks to the serpent, the one who tricked Adam and Eve, and he says, I will put enmity. It's a word we don't use much, right? It means hostility. I will put hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, that hostility was now between God and mankind. It was between the crown of of creation and the creator. And God is saying to Satan, I'm going to take that hostility, that dividing barrier, and I'm going to put it back where it belongs, between you, fallen angel, and the crown of my creation. This he, this this savior that I'm going to send is going to crush your head as you merely strike his heel. From there, the, the world spirals out of control. 
Sin infects everything and, and people get worse and worse, more and more wicked all the time. God gets fed up with it and destroys the world with a flood. But he spares a remnant. Noah and his family, right? Because God had, had said that this offspring, this he who would crush the serpent's head would be a descendant of Eve. And so he had to fulfill that promise by preserving some descendants of Eve. And he did that with Noah and his family and they survived and they got off the ark and they repopulated the world. Not long after that, we focus on Abraham, the man who we see in this account in Luke, dialoguing with the rich man. Abraham was the one on whom God focused his promise. He said, Abraham, from your family will come this head crusher, this savior. He will be a blessing to every nation on earth. But of course, there was the problem, right? Abraham had no children. And so he was forced to trust God's promise. And he kicked back for a long time as God seemed to be slow in keeping his promise. Eventually, Abraham said, I got a better idea, Lord. How about we use this servant in my house, this guy named Eliezer? You could keep your promise through him. And God says, no, it's going to be a son from your own body. Even though you're old, even though your wife is past childbearing years. And Abraham believed. He was persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. And God credited that to him as righteousness. Abraham was given everything he needed to spend eternity in heaven. And it had nothing to do with who he was or what he did. But it was the fact that God persuaded him that he didn't just make promises, but he kept them. God worked faith in Abraham. God made Abraham righteous. And it's because of what God did in Abraham that he would be forever in heaven. And God, of course, kept his promises. Abraham had a son, who had sons, who had more sons, and they became the great nation God promised. And this great nation was enslaved in Egypt, and then they came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, who wrote about all of this. And God made promises to them. Through you, this Savior will come. And I'm going to give you a land of your own to live in. I'm going to bring you from slavery to the promised land. And what did God do? He freed them in the most unlikeliest of ways through miracle after miracle after miracle. Those 10 plagues. Then they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. They received miraculous bread from heaven every morning, quail in the camp every night, water from a rock in the middle of the desert when there was no water to drink, and God sustained them this way for 40 years. And how did they respond to his miracles? with doubt and complaining and unbelief. This goes on and on. God continues to make his promises to send a savior and his people reject him and rebel. The prophets come in and they start reminding the people of God's promises, reminding them of all that he had promised, giving more and more information about what the savior would be like, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, Promise after promise, a descendant of David, a king. 
There's the prophet Hosea. He came to God's people and said, I'm going to teach you a lesson about your relationship with God. God told Hosea to to marry an adulterous woman. And he said, Hosea, your adulterous wife is going to continue to be adulterous after you marry her. She's going to be unfaithful to you. But you're going to be faithful to her. And we're going to use this as a picture to teach the people about my relationship with them. I am the faithful husband. They are the adulterous wife. I've always been perfectly faithful to them and they've done nothing but go run after other gods. Go run after other sources of blessing. They've trusted in their own strength and blessing from any other source but from me. And yet, though they don't deserve to be called my people, I will call them my people once again. I am still going to send this head crusher who will put the hostility back between God and man. If you can't become convinced of the Lord's great love for you through his word, nothing will convince you of God's great love for you. If you can't listen to what's written in Moses and the prophets and come to the conclusion that this Savior, for all nations, not just for one person, not just for a chosen people, but through a chosen people for all. If you can't become convinced that you're a part of all nations, if you can't become convinced that you are a part of the world for whom God sent his son, if you read Moses and the prophets and you don't come away floored by the love that the Father has shown to you, nothing, and I mean nothing, No miracle, no resurrection, nothing will convince you of the Lord's great love for you. You you might come up with other reasons that you think God loves you, but it won't be the real reason. It won't be because God is gracious. It won't be God loves me even though I could not possibly deserve it at all. What do we see in the rich man? On this earth, he was blessed beyond compare. He had everything. You had your good things. Lazarus had his bad things. What did you do with your good things? The rich man proved how he felt about what was said in Moses and the prophets by what he did with his good things. And what did he do? He kept them for himself. He looked at his good things, his riches, and he came to the conclusion that God must love him. Why else would God bless him in this way? Why else would God give him so much stuff and treat this scumbag Lazarus in such a horrible way? He must have done something terrible. Or maybe his parents or his grandparents, but someone did something really bad for him to be treated that way and for me to be treated this way. I deserve what I have. He deserves what he's getting. Why would I share any of my stuff with him? The rich man had reached a conclusion. He thought God loved him. But he wasn't convinced on the basis of what God said in his word. But then here you have Lazarus suffering a life that you and I cannot even begin to imagine. 
has spoiled 21st century Americans. If we have the slightest boil, we can scurry along to the doctor right away and have that taken care of real quick. This man's suffering. But he knew from Moses and the prophets that sinful though he was, not deserving of God's love at all, he had been fully persuaded, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that his God loved him. And that because God is gracious and because God loved him and because God promised to send the Messiah to rescue him from hell, he would spend eternity comforted in heaven. Lazarus was convinced. The rich man was not. What would it have looked like if the rich man had listened to Moses and the prophets and had become floored by God's great love for him? What would it have looked like? How would it have been different? Well, for starters, he would have looked at the blessings in his life and he never once would have thought he deserved them. He would have said, I don't deserve any of this. God is so gracious to me. Not only has he promised me peace and heaven, but he's given me all this stuff that I don't deserve. And he would have used it, not just for himself, but for anyone who needed it. Lazarus, what can I do for you? What has God given to me? I have time. Let me take you to the doctor. I I know how to treat these wounds. Let me take care of them for you. Let me pour wine and oil on them. Let me take care of you. Are are you hungry? Let me give you some food from my table. Come, sit, eat. If the rich man had been convinced by Moses and the prophets of God's great love for him, great love would have followed. That's what happens. When you hear Moses and the prophets and you are convinced of God's great love for you, you show great love to others. Lazarus had nothing to offer anyone. And so he just loved the God who showed him love. Great love followed. He, he trusted the Lord who was allowing him to suffer on this earth. He believed the word of God and he trusted that heaven would be his. What's it going to take for you? What's it going to take for you to show this kind of love in your life? What's it going to take for you to start loving people who don't deserve your love? What's it going to take for you to love people who look different from you, who are from a different place than you, who speak a different language than you, What's it going to take for you to look at someone who's a sinner? An open public sinner who who defies the living God. What's it going to take for you to look at them and love them? I promise you this. No amount of legislations will teach you how to show the love that God demands. No amount of protests in the streets will teach you to show the kind of love God expects. No amount of martyrs dying in the streets will teach you to show the love God expects of you. But God's great love, shown to the world, shown to you in his son Jesus, will teach you how to show great love. 
You heard a snippet of it in our second lesson for today. We're going to close our sermon with the context of John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. I'll read it real slow. As I get to the end, you'll, you'll find it in your worship folder. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, He's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have come to us in your word through Moses and the prophets. You have shown us your incredible love for the world. You you show us example after example of the wickedness of mankind, of one human hating another, of one nation hating another, of of a fallen race, a sinful people, rebelling against you at every turn. And yet you love us. You sent that which was most valuable to you, your own son, to pour out his blood for the sins of the whole world. You've convinced us that you love us as your son shed his blood for every sin ever committed. Help us to to better understand your love for us. Forgive us for the times that we have hated our brother. Forgive us for the times that we've elevated ourselves over others for any reason whatsoever. 
Help us to show love to those that we are convinced don't deserve it, just as you show love to us, and we don't deserve it. Help us to look at those around us who sin just as we do, to see their need, to, to, to extend a hand, to help them in any way that we can with the physical blessings you've given us, with the time and gifts you've given us. But we ask that you'd give us an opportunity to share Moses and the prophets with them, that you would give us a chance to show everyone we meet that you love them, and that's why we love them. We ask that you would give us opportunities in our individual lives to show love. We ask that you would give us opportunities as a congregation to show love together. We, we thank you for forgiving us for the hatred in our hearts. We thank you for forgiving us for the times we've failed to do good, for the times that we've failed to love our neighbors as you have loved us. Bring us back to this greatest love story every single day. Motivate us to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.